Welcome. This is the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Dr. Lisa Johnson. This week, December 21, 2023, we feature articles on percutaneous coronary intervention for stable angina, doxycycline prophylaxis to prevent STIs in women, simvastatin for critically ill patients with COVID-19, and melioidosis in Mississippi, a review article on eye infections, a case report of a woman with chronic diarrhea and skin changes, and perspective articles on when patients lose decision-making capacity, on silencing the FDA's voice, and on being hidden behind bars. A placebo-controlled trial of percutaneous coronary intervention for stable angina by Christopher Rajkumar from Imperial College, London and colleagues. Percutaneous coronary intervention, PCI, is frequently performed to reduce the symptoms of stable angina. This study evaluated whether PCI relieves angina more than a placebo procedure in patients who were not receiving antianginal medication and had objective evidence of ischemia. 301 patients stopped all antianginal medications and underwent a two-week symptom assessment phase before randomization. Patients were then randomly assigned to undergo PCI or a placebo procedure and were followed for 12 weeks. The primary endpoint was the angina symptom score, which was calculated daily on the basis of the number of angina episodes that occurred on a given day, the number of antianginal medications prescribed on that day, and clinical events, including the occurrence of unblinding owing to unacceptable angina or acute coronary syndrome or death. At the 12-week follow-up, the mean angina symptom score was 2.9 in the PCI group and 5.6 in the placebo group. One patient in the placebo group had unacceptable angina leading to unblinding. Acute coronary syndromes occurred in four patients in the PCI group and in six patients in the placebo group. Among patients with stable angina who were receiving little or no antianginal medication and had objective evidence of ischemia, PCI resulted in a lower angina symptom score than a placebo procedure, indicating a better health status with respect to angina. In an editorial, Harvey White from Te Fatu Ora Health New Zealand, Auckland, asks, How might the results of this trial be applied to clinical practice? A patient-focused discussion should be undertaken at the patient's first visit about the aims of therapy and what goal is important to the patient. A treadmill exercise test may not be necessary for most patients. A test for inducible ischemia may also not be necessary and CT angiography can be performed to document the extent and severity of coronary artery disease. Then, at the time of invasive angiography, fractional flow reserve can be measured to determine the functional significance of the stenosis. 
The results of the trial by Rajkumar and colleagues provide evidence that PCI in patients with minimal or no use of antianginal medications reduces symptoms among those with stable angina. It will be interesting to see the extent to which shared decision-making determines the choice of treatment pathway. Medical therapy first, followed by PCI if the symptoms continue or if the medical therapy causes unacceptable side effects. Or PCI first, followed by medical therapy if the symptoms continue. The benefits and risks of both pathways should be discussed with the patient, including the risks of PCI, the prevalence of stent thrombosis, 0.5% per year and the need for dual antiplatelet therapy with the associated risk of bleeding. Patients should express a preference, which is paramount. The trial by Rajkumar and colleagues will influence patient care, guidelines, and the design of new trials. It is an important trial that changes the way we think about monitoring angina symptoms and the way we implement shared patient care. Doxycycline prophylaxis to prevent sexually transmitted infections in women. By Janelle Stewart from the Hennepin Healthcare Research Institute, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and colleagues. The global incidence of bacterial sexually transmitted infections, STIs, specifically chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis, are rising, with 374 million infections estimated to occur annually. Women are disproportionately burdened by STI sequelae, including pelvic inflammatory disease, chronic pain, infertility, ectopic pregnancy, increased risk of HIV acquisition, and complications during pregnancy and fetal complications. This trial compared doxycycline post-exposure prophylaxis, 200 mg taken within 72 hours after condomless sex, with standard care, among 449 cisgender Kenyan women 18 to 30 years of age who were receiving pre-exposure prophylaxis against HIV. Participants were followed quarterly over 12 months. A total of 109 incident STIs occurred, 50 in the doxycycline group and 59 in the standard care group with no significant between-group difference in incidence, relative risk 0.88. Among the 109 incident STIs, chlamydia accounted for 78%, including 35 in the doxycycline group and 50 in the standard care group. No serious adverse events were considered by the trial investigators to be related to doxycycline, and there were no incident HIV infections. Doxycycline was detected in 29% of hair samples from randomly selected participants. All N. gonorrhea positive isolates were resistant to doxycycline. Among cisgender women, the incidence of STIs was not significantly lower with doxycycline post-exposure prophylaxis than with standard care. According to hair sample analysis, the use of doxycycline post-exposure prophylaxis among those assigned to receive it was low. 
Jean Marazzo from the National Institutes of Health, Bethesda, Maryland, writes in an editorial that in the trial by Stewart and colleagues, the intervention did not reduce the incidence of STI. The authors hypothesized that these results may be explained by the low uptake of doxycycline, as substantiated by measurement of the drug product in hair samples, the high background prevalence of the TET-M resistance plasmid in Kenya, and the low incidence of syphilis. Although the findings are disappointing, the trial provides a needed opportunity to reconsider how to strategically inform the design and conduct of biomedical intervention trials involving women of reproductive age. One way forward is to recognize that the calculus of invoking STI or HIV prevention with a given sex act may be informed by a person's sexual network, perception of partner risk, and ability to define the timing and terms of how sex occurs. Where does this leave us as we consider the next steps for chemo prevention against STI? specifically doxycycline prophylaxis, in cisgender women. In the United States, the incidence of congenital syphilis has reached an all-time high, and increased uptake of oral PrEP has not reached enough women, leaving the incidence of HIV among them unchanged. For chemoprophylaxis against STI, we need to do better in working out the science of drug delivery the motivation and context for product use, and the background antibiotic susceptibility to inform the design of interventional trials. With women bearing the brunt of the long-term consequences of untreated STI, we owe them no less. Simvastatin in Critically Ill Patients with COVID-19 by the REMAP-CAP Investigators This study evaluated the efficacy of simvastatin in critically ill patients with COVID-19. Simvastatin is an inexpensive and widely available medication that is predominantly used for its lipid-lowering and cardioprotective properties. Simvastatin also has anti-inflammatory and immunomodulatory effects. Simvastatin, 80 mg daily, was compared with no statin control in 2,684 critically ill patients with COVID-19 who were not receiving statins at baseline. Enrollment began in October of 2020, but was closed in January 2023 on the basis of a low-anticipated likelihood that pre-specified stopping criteria would be met as COVID-19 cases decreased. The primary outcome of the median number of organ support-free days was 11 in the simvastatin group and 7 in the control group. The posterior median adjusted odds ratio was 1.15 for simvastatin as compared with control, yielding a 95.9% posterior probability of superiority. At 90 days, the hazard ratio for survival was 1.12, yielding a 91.9% posterior probability of superiority of simvastatin. The results of secondary analyses were consistent with those of the primary analysis. 
Serious adverse events, such as elevated levels of liver enzymes and creatine kinase, were reported more frequently with simvastatin than with control. Although recruitment was stopped because cases had decreased, among critically ill patients with COVID-19, simvastatin did not meet the pre-specified criteria for superiority to control. In an editorial, Ari Moskowitz and Michelle Gong from the Montefiore Medical Center, Bronx, New York, write that in the REMAP-CAP trial, most of the enrolled patients met the global definition of acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS. Given disappointing findings from previous trials of pharmacologic therapies, including simvastatin for ARDS, it is of great interest that although simvastatin did not meet the pre-specified criteria for superiority to standard care with respect to organ support-free days through day 21, there was a 95.9% posterior probability of superiority of simvastatin. The trial was stopped early because of a low likelihood of reaching pre-specified stopping criteria as a result of decreasing numbers of patients with severe COVID-19. In retrospect, several decisions regarding the trial design may have resulted in the early stopping of the trial, and these decisions have important implications for future studies. For example, the pre-specified 99% threshold for superiority is a high bar. Many clinicians may consider the finding of 95.9% probability of superiority to be sufficiently convincing. As for which patients may benefit the most from simvastatin, ARDS is a heterogeneous syndrome grouped more by clinical findings than a deep understanding of pathophysiological processes. The REMAP-CAP results raise important questions for understanding and studying the heterogeneity of ARDS. With increasing precision and personalization in trial enrollment, REMAP-CAP may be a cautionary tale against excluding certain subgroups of patients on the basis of post-hoc analyses of previous studies. REMAP-CAP raises questions regarding statin use for non-COVID-19-related ARDS about the role of precision medicine in trial design and about how adaptive trials in acute critical illness can balance efficiency and benefit to participants. Addressing these questions will be crucial for clinical research in critical care to translate trial data to the bedside in the years to come. Locally Acquired Melioidosis Linked to Environment Mississippi 2020-2023 by Julia Petrus from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Atlanta, and colleagues. Melioidosis is a potentially fatal disease caused by the environmental bacterium Burkholderia pseudomallei, which is mainly endemic to tropical and subtropical regions worldwide. Infection occurs by means of exposure to contaminated soil or water, by percutaneous inoculation, inhalation, or ingestion. Symptoms typically appear within 21 days after exposure. Melioidosis is rare in the United States, 
and, before this investigation, B. pseudomallei was not known to have been isolated from the environment in the continental United States. These investigators report on three patients living in the same Mississippi Gulf Coast County who presented with melioidosis within a three-year period. They were infected by the same Western Hemisphere B. pseudomallei strain that was discovered in three environmental samples collected from the property of one of the patients. The findings indicate local acquisition of melioidosis from the environment in the Mississippi Gulf Coast region. Eye Infections a review article by Marlene Durand from Massachusetts General Hospital, Boston, and colleagues. Eye infections are an important cause of vision loss worldwide. Patients with these infections are commonly seen by primary care providers, internists, emergency medicine specialists, hospitalists, and ophthalmologists. Each year in the United States alone, conjunctivitis accounts for more than 550,000 visits to emergency departments and many more visits to outpatient offices. Keratitis is diagnosed at more than 1 million office and emergency department visits. Exogenous endophthalmitis complicates up to 0.1% of the more than 7 million cataract surgeries and intravitreal injections performed. And thousands of patients are admitted to general hospitals to treat vision-threatening eye infections such as endogenous endophthalmitis and infectious uveitis. Acute infectious conjunctivitis is the most common eye infection seen by primary care providers and accounts for one-third of eye-related emergency department visits in the United States. Viruses cause approximately 80% of cases of acute infectious conjunctivitis in adults, but less than 20% of pediatric cases. Bacteria cause more than 70% of pediatric cases. Eye infections are important to recognize and treat, and many cases can be prevented. Preventive measures include infection control practices to prevent the spread of viral conjunctivitis, contact lens care to prevent microbial keratitis, use of safety glasses to prevent eye injuries and related infections, prophylactic antibiotics to prevent endophthalmitis after penetrating eye trauma and vaccination against herpes zoster to prevent herpes zoster ophthalmicus. This review summarizes the epidemiology, diagnosis, and treatment of eye infections. A 43-year-old woman with chronic diarrhea, hair loss, and nail and skin changes. A case record of the Massachusetts General Hospital by Jimmy Lai and colleagues. A 43-year-old woman presented with abdominal pain, chronic diarrhea, and weight loss, as well as hair loss and nail and skin changes. On dermatologic examination, the patient had patchy hair loss with a large patch of alopecia at the vertex of the scalp. There were symmetric brown macules over the lateral lower cheeks and malar regions of the face and hyperpigmentation and diffuse brown-gray macules were observed over the palms and the palmar aspects of the fingers. Onychodystrophy was present on all the fingernails and toenails.
There was laboratory evidence of malabsorption and electrolyte disturbance, findings consistent with protein-losing enteropathy. The Cronkite Canada Syndrome, CCS, a rare, apparently non-inherited hamartomatous polyposis syndrome, accounts for many of the features of this patient's clinical presentation. CCS is characterized by the presence of multiple hamartomatous polyps throughout the gastrointestinal tract, apart from the esophagus, as well as multiple cutaneous changes including the loss of the hair and nails and hyperpigmentation of the skin. Patients with CCS usually present with diarrhea and protein-losing enteropathy as the dominant gastrointestinal symptoms. The diagnosis can be established if multiple hamartomatous polyps are identified in the gastrointestinal tract. On the second hospital day, esophagogastroduodenoscopy revealed a trophic background gastric mucosa with multiple gastric polyps in clusters. Fundamentals of Medical Ethics, a new perspective series, an editorial by Bernard Lowe from the University of California, San Francisco, and co-editors. Ethical issues in medicine have been hashed out for centuries. But advances in medical science often give rise to new ethical dilemmas. In this issue of the journal, we're launching a new perspective series, Fundamentals of Medical Ethics, in which we explore some key ethical questions facing medicine today. From how to make medical decisions for patients who have lost decision-making capacity, to how best to respond when a medical error is made to how to address new issues in cutting-edge brain research. Because addressing issues in medical ethics often requires multidisciplinary expertise in philosophy, biomedical research, clinical practice, law, policy, and communication, among other fields, the authors contributing to the series come from a range of disciplines. In some cases, historical events and cultural shifts force us to revisit settled practices. In other areas, the relevant ethical questions are still being formulated. One thing that is certain is that new issues in medical ethics will continue to emerge. Our hope is that the Fundamentals of Medical Ethics series will suggest broad lessons to keep in mind as physicians, patients, research participants, families, and communities struggle with new and evolving quandaries. Deciding for Patients Who Have Lost Decision-Making Capacity Finding Common Ground in Medical Ethics A Perspective by Bernard Lowe Following the 1990 U.S. Supreme Court ruling in Cruzen v. Director, Missouri Department of Health, advanced directives were widely promoted as a way for patients to provide the strict level of evidence regarding life-sustaining treatment that states might require under Cruzen. But the ethical and legal framework underpinning Cruzen is no longer accepted in medical ethics, clinical care, or law. Instead, family decision-making is trusted. Rigid legal formalities have been eliminated, and the patient's prior directives, values, and goals are not the only ethical basis for decisions. Today, 
two questions command attention regarding deciding for patients who lack decision-making capacity. First, how can clinicians help surrogates make difficult decisions for incapacitated loved ones? Discussions among patients, surrogates, and physicians should prepare surrogates to make in-the-moment decisions later. The goals of such anticipatory discussions are to improve communication and to reduce adverse psychological outcomes for surrogates. When surrogates must make decisions for incompetent patients, they may need intensive emotional decision and communication support. Clinicians need to recognize and respect how such decisions may be shaped by culture, race, ethnicity, and religious or spiritual beliefs. Second, what criteria should surrogates use when making decisions for loved ones? Some standards for decisions make sense in the abstract but fail in practice. In the absence of a considered advanced directive that addresses the situation at hand, some ethics scholars suggest that surrogates should make decisions that are consistent with the patient's past commitments. But in some scenarios, the current best interests of the patient may be the most appropriate standard for surrogate decisions. For example, in advanced Alzheimer's disease, the current patient may be radically different from the person who had previously lived their life according to certain values or expressed wishes and goals. Silencing the FDA's Voice Drug Information on Trial A Perspective by Tina Watson and Christopher Robertson from Boston University School of Law On September 1st, a panel of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals allowed a case to proceed against the Food and Drug Administration concerning its public statements on the use of ivermectin for treating COVID-19. Ivermectin is approved by the FDA for treating parasitic worms, head lice, and skin conditions in humans. Another version of the drug is approved for use in animals. Beginning in 2020, claims about the drug's effectiveness against COVID-19 spread rapidly online and in the media, with little scientific backing. If physicians believe a drug may be useful beyond its FDA-approved indication, they are free to prescribe it off-label as part of the practice of medicine. During the COVID-19 pandemic, some doctors began treating patients with COVID-19 with ivermectin and promoting themselves as a source for such prescriptions. The FDA isn't authorized to take enforcement action against physicians who prescribe drugs off-label. Between August 2021 and April 2022, however, the agency released several public messages about ivermectin and COVID-19, including an informal consumer update titled, Why You Should Not Use Ivermectin to Treat or Prevent COVID-19, and three social media posts, one of which read, You are not a horse. You are not a cow. Seriously, y'all, stop it. Although research into the use of ivermectin for treating COVID-19 was ongoing during this time, the FDA has never approved the drug for this indication. 
Rigorous evidence has since accumulated showing that ivermectin is ineffective and carries substantial risks when used for treating COVID-19 in humans. The FDA's statements on ivermectin received widespread attention in the media and among medical organizations. Three physicians who prescribed and promoted ivermectin for COVID-19 treatment sued the FDA, alleging that its statements interfered with their ability to practice medicine and harmed their professional reputations, even though they hadn't been named by the FDA. One doctor claimed the agency's statements had caused him to be referred to his state medical board. The others claimed to have lost admitting privileges at a hospital and a role at a medical school. The District Court for the Southern District of Texas granted the FDA's motion to dismiss the suit, finding that sovereign immunity barred the lawsuit from being brought against the agency. On appeal, the Fifth Circuit took a different view. The Fifth Circuit decision raises questions about the agency's ability to advise the public about the safety and efficacy of medical products and to influence the off-label use of drugs. If the case against the FDA ultimately prevails, the agency's ability to protect the public and support evidence-based medicine could be eroded. Hidden Behind Bars The Public Health Implications of Incompetency to Stand Trial, a perspective by Nathaniel Morris and Jacob Eisenberg from the University of California, San Francisco. Through a grate in a jail cell door, a psychiatrist asks Mr. R., a young man with schizophrenia, whether he would like to come out for an appointment. Lying in bed, Mr. R. mutters, I'm fine. He doesn't meet criteria for involuntary psychiatric hospitalization, since he is clothed, eats regularly, and hasn't been found to pose a danger to himself or others. The physician tries several approaches to engage with Mr. R., who each time replies, I'm fine. Having been found incompetent to stand trial in court, Mr. R. has for months rarely left his cell and declines all mental health services. Cases like that of Mr. R. represent a hidden yet growing public health crisis. Across the United States, people with mental illness, developmental disabilities, dementia, and other forms of cognitive impairment are incarcerated in a state of limbo because of concerns about their competency to stand trial. A combination of factors has led to substantial backups in legal and medical systems throughout the country. In many states, hospital admission wait lists for competency restoration have swelled to hundreds or thousands of defendants. These authors believe these backlogs represent a public health crisis for several reasons. First, people awaiting competency evaluation or restoration are being incarcerated for long periods without having been convicted of a crime. Second, these backlogs lead to overcrowding of jails and stretch already limited mental health resources in carceral settings. Third, This system not only prolongs court proceedings for defendants, but also delays resolution for other parties, including victims of crimes and families on both sides. 
In her images in clinical medicine, a 49-year-old woman with Graves' disease presented with a three-year history of skin changes on her arms and legs. There were violaceous, non-pitting, indurated nodules on the dorsa of her hands, distal forearms, and shins. Laboratory testing showed an undetectable thyrotropin level and elevated total and free thyroxine and triiodothyronine levels. Testing for thyrotropin receptor and antithyroid peroxidase antibodies was positive. A diagnosis of thyroid dermopathy in Graves' disease was made. Thyroid dermopathy results from the accumulation of glycosaminoglycans in the dermis. Although the pretibial area is the most frequently involved site, thyroid dermopathy may occur on the feet, arms, and upper back. A total thyroidectomy was performed, after which levothyroxine therapy was given. In another image, a 14-year-old boy presented to the emergency department with a five-week history of dry cough. An echocardiogram had shown a large pericardial effusion with signs of cardiac tamponade. Urgent pericardiocentesis was performed, during which 850 milliliters of sanguineous fluid was removed over the course of a few minutes. Shortly thereafter, the patient became hypotensive. A repeat echocardiogram revealed new right ventricular dilatation, biventricular systolic dysfunction, and severe tricuspid regurgitation, shown in a video at NEJM.org. A diagnosis of pericardial decompression syndrome, a rare complication of pericardiocentesis, was made. Pericardial decompression syndrome may occur when a large amount of pericardial fluid is rapidly drained, resulting in ventricular dysfunction and hemodynamic collapse in the absence of anatomical injury. The patient was treated in the intensive care unit for acute right ventricular failure. Further investigation identified B-cell lymphoma as the cause of the patient's effusion, and chemotherapy was initiated. This concludes our summary. Let us know what you think about our podcast. Any comments or suggestions may be sent to audio at nejm.org. Thank you for listening.